And when the chart is on the screen, will viewers be able to see me? Because I got something stuck between my teeth that I want to pick out right now. Uh, I do will not have it set for people to be able to see you messing with your teeth. <laughs> okay, because no, it's bugging the shit out of me. <laughs> Welcome back to the Future's Edge podcast. I'm Jim Murio, as always, the brains behind the operation, uh, co-host and executive producer, Bob Iacchino. And the first Friday of every month, as you know, we have Mike Arnold, Chief Strategist for Path Trading Partners, Chief Technical Analyst, and one of my favorite technical analysts. And I always learn a lot from these shows and look forward to them more than others. Michael, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. What markets do you want to cover today? Actually, it's unemployment today, so let's spend five minutes going over that. Bobby, first you, what did you think of those numbers? Um, I saw a Steph Pomboy tweet where she talked about the revisions are going to be brutal to the downside uh, when this thing comes out next week. Part of it was she said the birth death rate was positive. I don't remember what the rest of it was and I don't have it in front of me, but I, I tend to lean her, her way on these things. Either way, you look at the trend of the employment numbers and they're headed lower, not the, not the unemployment rate but the number of job gains. We have little spikes, but overall the trend is down. So, um, you know, I think we're, we're not in a position yet to say the least Fed friendly was wages. I mean, right. wages were up. And we saw another one of those, those bad indications for the economy with the employment cost index being up while productivity was down, which is like an inflation cocktail from the labor side. But um, I think the number itself was consumer friendly, Fed unfriendly. Right. So I, I think the reason that the stock market liked it is because the stock market now sees what's going on in the banking uh, world and uh, the potential crisis, the potential uh, credit crunch and pullback in lending, and now thinks that these two things, the, the labor market that's not falling apart. I mean, I don't think these numbers are great, but the labor market that's not falling apart, juxtaposed against potential pullback in credit that these two things will fight where the Fed can kind of stay on the sidelines. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying that they are going to have to remove all those rate cuts they've priced in. Um, well, I just meant sit on the sidelines for the next two weeks. I'm not sure about <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> so I would, I mean, I don't, the, the, the pricing into the rate cuts I think is odd and interesting. I think if the Fed is going to cut rates, they're going to cut rates by 100 basis points. They're going to cut rates only if burning timbers are falling from the ceiling, correct? Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know about yes. the 100 basis points, but I agree with the timbers. Yeah, yeah, right. So so I'm, I'm curious as to what's going to happen. I think like prior to today, I think you know gold and silver and well, copper too have been big things of mine. And one of my thought is that the market's anticipating injections of liquidity if we're really going into recession and there's going to be those burning timbers, then economically sensitive stocks can't be the recipient of that, of that um, added liquidity. So then it ends up in gold and silver and Bitcoin. So that's why I like those trades still. Today was obviously a pullback of all those trades. Well, here's something else that's interesting. So today they have the first rate cut as of right now that we're again, we're recording on Friday. They have the first 25 base point rate cut in September again. Right. But a couple of days ago, might have even been yesterday, Mike, I think it was yesterday where they had basically a one month pause, 
which to me is, is completely ridiculous. The Fed would pause. That implies a massive banking crisis where they can't keep rates here. And at that point, lower rates isn't going to really help the community banks that have already lost all their depositors. So even then, cutting rates isn't really the, the panacea. But if you actually follow the CME Fed, uh, Fed watch tool on the probabilities, yesterday, they had the end of 2024 with the Fed funds rate between 275 and 3%. Yep. Prior to this rate hike cycle, the last time rates were that high was 2008. So that's still theoretically high rates, especially, yeah. for, again, a technology sector that has really existed with free money, save for your Microsofts, Apples, and everybody else that was around prior to 2008. So I, I still think it's very troubling for the equity markets. Yeah, Michael? Well, yeah, I, I mean, the, with the unemployment today, with the average hourly earnings coming in hot, I it's this is not going to help the Fed bring down or the inflation from my perspective, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, at the end of the day, it's what the trade is to me and, and we'll get into that. But right now from the people I talked to, whenever there's bad news or perceived bad news, it's like, all right, well, the Fed's going to have to stop now, probably the pausing early and cut. So we might as well rally it. Whenever there's good news, like the, look at the you know, well, unemployment's holding up and everything else, well, let's just buy it. Everything's in, let's just still buy it mode and we'll get into the charts, but let's buy it. And the rallies are occurring on lower volume than the sell-offs, which is really disconcerting to me from a technical point of view. But it's like the narrative when I talk to people, it flips, depending on the day, they just wanna find an excuse to buy it still. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So sure. when is that going to end? Let's, that leads us right into the charts. You want to do S&Ps first? Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, hold on. Let me just share this out. There and when the go. chart is on the screen, will viewers be able to see me? Because I got something stuck between my teeth that I want to pick out right now. Uh, I do not have see it set not? for people to be able to see you messing with your teeth. <laughs> okay, because you know, it's bugging the, the shit out of me. <laughs> just leave it the way it is. Oh boy. First oregano oil, then your teeth. Yeah, a lot of weird quirks today. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comments. <laughs> uh, tell me this. My, I've been preaching for a bit that I need to settle above about 42 and a half to think that, that there's anything meaningful in the rally other than a back and forth. Like, tell me I'm wrong first and then go on to your stuff. Is that cool? <laughs> You're, you're all right. The minimum I'm watching for to for a at least a short term breakout because we've been in the same consolidation range. I mean, we're essentially going to close today, roughly maybe slightly higher than we closed on Monday, April 3rd. We're going to close back in from the highs from the beginning in mid February in that area, the spike highs from December. It, Anything I'm watching for a breakout, we really need a close above about 42.24, and then uh, that could take us to the 4,300 level. We need a weekly close above about 43.20, and then from a technical standpoint, we could be off to the races for much higher prices. Give me that level again, settlement 43. above. 43.20. Interesting, good. So on a weekly basis. Right. It's on a weekly basis. On a weekly, right, not basis. a daily close, you need a weekly close. 
Okay. So, but based on what you had said earlier, you don't think any of those things are going to happen, correct? You are still somewhat uh, bearish, correct? Well, the, here, let me just go through. So, so we had a confirmed with the price action yesterday, we had a confirmed but not triggered double top, which has been with this lower volume rally today, that has been wiped out. I mean, we're running a maybe, we're going into with 30 minutes left. We were running about 60% of the volume. Now that can pick up into the close, but you can see here with the volume lines at the bottom, uh, three of the four days of sell-offs were on much higher volume than today. And even the Monday sort of back and forth price action is roughly in line with the volume today. And we even going back on the rallies before the big rallies on Thursday the 27th of April and Friday the 28th were also on lower volume compared to sell-offs. So the volume's coming in on sell-offs. That's why in, we'd really have to break out and break out, you know, get a close above that 42.24 with supporting volume, not with this weak volume run-ups that just, all right, we have another uh, weak volume run-up on uh, Friday. And, you know, and people are paying up massively for this so far what's the i just looked it up before i got on here the standard uh pe ratio of the sp 500 now is trading at uh 24 times earnings and the shiller okay. is at 20 over 29 so these again the market's priced in from a fundamental standpoint for perfection that and I'm seeing people are just looking at the top and from another fundamental standpoint at the they're literally just, hey, well, let's see. Did they beat revenue and earnings? Yep, buy it. Uh, yeah, well, look, it was dialed so far down and their the revenue and earnings are lower than the last quarter. It doesn't matter. Buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, why? It's lower, but buy it. They beat. Buy it. <laughs> okay. So this, this to me is interesting because there's a lot of things that are pointing toward the economy slowing and employment is just not quite there yet. Although there are some signs of that as well. They're just early stage signs. I, I don't know why everybody, you, you know, I looked up today, guys, I looked up the largest one month jumps in uh, the unemployment rate and going all the way back to fucking forever. If you take out the depression and the pandemic, you're talking like the largest one month jump being about 1.5%, not much more than that. Most of the largest jumps aren't even 1%. And with the Fed looking for unemployment to get somewhere in the four and a half to 5% range before they're comfortable, that of course assumes inflation has come down too. Do you guys all see in the press conference, the one reporter trying to say, well, is 3% okay? That was hilarious. Yeah. That was yeah. like you talking to your wife, Jimmy, and be like, yeah, so I'll be home at <laughs> three. You mean two? Well, of course, three, but she's going, yeah, you said two, right? No, well, three, right? I mean, it was just a back and forth. It was freaking hysterical to me. He would not say that he will accept higher than 2%. And again, man, like we, when we talked to Michael Farr, and Michael Farr said, Jerome Powell, I grew up with him. He's stubborn. You know, I, I anyway, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. It's chart time. No, but even to put it on your point, you have a very good point. Let's just say you get some, let's say we had six months starting now of uh, unemployment jump at 1%. Six months from now, roughly puts us at the end of the year, you're, you're back to four. Mm -hmm. 
and they wouldn't be shocked if it was four because they've even been looking at four and a half. So, you know, but everything is still priced to perfection. That's why on to re-go back to my statements, if we're going to break out to the upside, I need also supporting volume. One other thing based off the S&P on a multi-week cycle, we're even with, we're still going to close down this week. Uh, we are rolling over in, in the weekly cycles and it's going to be confirmed with this close, even though we've rallied back strongly today, it's still going to be a down weekly close, which is technically rolling the cycles over. So for the next few weeks, I am watching for downside pressure, which is another reason the uh, market has to really break out with some strength to counteract that. So what's the trade from the short side? Where do we know it? Where's the trade from the short side? The early warning sign is a close below 4050. The major level then, if we start closing below 4050, I believe we'll test the area of the simple 200, which is coming in just under 4,000, about 3986, 3990. But on a, the next key closing basis you want to watch for, if we do roll over in a weekly cycles hold, and remember, that's a multi-week thing. It doesn't mean every week has to be down, but we could have downwards pressure for the next oh, possibly four weeks. The main, Another key level to watch for on a closing basis, on a daily closing basis, is 3977. Okay. Bobby? So, until yeah, then, it's just short-term there's, I mean, just short-term setups, but we're in a consolidation phase. We're still with this even snapback rally. We've gone a whole bunch of nowhere since the beginning of April. Right. Let's go to uh, what a, whichever other index. I think it's repetitive to just go over the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell. Pick the uh, other index you want to look at, and then let's go to gold if we could. Well, let's just take a look because the uh, NASDAQ, you know, this is the NASDAQ today is wiped off out four days of selling. <laughs> Beauty of the market cap weighted index. Yes. Yep. Uh, the NASDAQ, if the rally continues, I wouldn't be surprised to see the NASDAQ continue to run. But my key levels in the NASDAQ going into next week, we get a close above about 13,360 with some supporting volume, even though uh, cycles are at the weekly top, I'm watching for uh, 13,560 to about 13,600 as major, major key resistance. The breakdown area on the NASDAQ needs a close below 12,800. A close below 12,800 takes all the key support levels and uh, key moving averages out of the way. And then we, if we did close below that, my target would be about 12,150 in the short term. Makes sense. You want it gold? Definitely. Yeah. Gold. By the way, okay. if you watch Mike regular show, I'm still on gold. All right, go ahead. Same with me. And from multiple things I follow, I am watching for a corrective pullback in gold. But that's, Which, that doesn't negate the longer-term bull move, though, right? No. A corrective pullback would be very healthy at this point in gold uh, and would be a, could be a multi-year buying opportunity. Wait, what? I was doing something yep. else. Say that again. It, it, are you long, Bob? 
I'm here. Am I muted? No, I was doing something else. But I know, but are you long goal? Yeah, I'm long. Okay. So so you know, I'm still long goal. Uh, What I was saying is a corrective pullback is not something, you know, it's not something to look to short from my perspective. It would be a possibly a multi-year buying opportunity. Multi-year. Now, what tells you it's a multi-year buying opportunity? Uh, based if on it is, again, uh, the past performance and all that shit. Right. Again, you have to trade what is, but based off of a systematic stuff, based off some longer term cycles, and that doesn't mean it's going to 10,000 in, in six months. That means it could grind higher for multi, uh, multi-year multi period. But my minimum target would be at least for a year. Uh, so in my key targets... Again, we're looking at about uh, 2220 and then about 2350 areas to the upside. Uh, so far, we've we've held up very well on a weekly basis. But the key thing is if we close below about 1980, then I will start targeting the pullback closer to uh, 1920 to about 1930, and then start really looking for uh, some potential bottoming signals. If those so, are- Tom, Tom, repeat that. We'll know that the corrective phase is mo- is is happening if we close where below about 1980. Okay. Okay. That was a good year for me. Yes. Yeah. That was an and- excellent year. I was 15 years old. Great. I was, like 19. I was uh, 24. No, that's not. Oh, no, you, you were 24. Good thing I work with numbers. <laughs> right. Only I'm only good at numbers when there's dollars attached to them, and I'm even better at math when there's my dollars attached to them. Yeah, I was I was 13, 14 years old as well. Yeah, I was 15. Um, right. So here's yeah. here's my question because, and Jimmy, I think you you've heard me say this before. You know it from your own experiences. We, we know that double tops tend to be reversal patterns. And we also know that triple tops tend to be um, continuation. Continuation. I spent years and years, and Mike, I don't know if you ever found anything. I don't know if you ever looked at it. I spent years and years trying to find measured move targets off of triples, and I couldn't find anything that worked. Finding them in doubles was easy. Like it, it, you just had to find out what actually constituted a proper high probability double. But the triples was very, I never found anything. So when I look at this, you basically have a long-term triple top that, you know, right around that, that 2080 mark, give or take a few, right? The, so we had the high on the week of, in August of 2020, and that high was uh, 2089. And then we had the high uh, 2022 March which was uh, 2078. And then we had this week's high, which I think was around 2085 or so, right? So that is enough based on research. That's enough to call that a clean triple top. Now, the thing I want to tell people, because I always talk about these triples being continuations, the continuation move is higher. But if you just look at the first two tops and look at how much it backed and filled before it actually went up and retested it, I mean, we could theoretically be back. This is why I couldn't find anything. We could be back at 1700 and then break out up through and that'll be a continuation pattern. You know, it's kind of a crap thing to trade, but it does tend to continue. So well, I, I go out on a limb and saying that for me, for me only, not for anyone watching this or anything, I probably consistently buy gold wherever it went. 
just in little amounts here and there. In my testing, it's only two to three percent favors a continuation. Mm -hmm. So it's like fifty-two to forty-eight. Okay, still that's why it's yeah it's but with unreliable targets then yeah you know I'll wait for we've got a fair amount of price rejection up here. So you see back in August of 20, it was up here, rejected. Mm -hmm. March of, uh, what was that? March of 22, rejected. Then most recently, uh, April and May. Now, not saying, so technically it's a quad top up here. Uh, yeah. But as long as this, now, one thing, if we get a close below about 1913, I will start, the corrective move will still be in place, but I will start watching for a bigger pullback before the resumption of, of this trend. So overall, unless the only thing that shifts it for me is if we get a weekly close above about 2090 with volume, then it's just, all right, you got to go with the breakout at that point. We didn't get the corrective move. We The, the stars didn't line up for the correction and all right, go with the breakout. Let's look at one more chart before we go to Mike Singleton. And I wonder if he has any insight on why 2000 would matter in gold. I'm not sure that he would because he's more of just like a macro analyst. But I heard a prediction today on the 10 year at 3% before the end of the year. So, Mike, do you want to, is that okay, Jimmy? We look at a 10 year chart? Yeah, of course. Do you see any, anything in the charts that would indicate that? Uh, well, on the yield chart, we have a confirmed big weekly double top that's not triggered yet. Okay. Uh, and the first target would be 2.95, roughly. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Now, it's not triggered yet. Right, so it's just confirmed. It's confirmed. And again, for people who do what's the difference between confirmed and triggered? Confirmed means the pattern is in place. Triggered means it is now the probability shift to where, okay, it's actionable. You can have confirmed patterns that never trigger. So uh, that is uh, like this. I would definitely not try to front run. Oh, well, it's confirmed. Let's just try to front run it. No, I really need a pattern like this to trigger because it's also on a weekly time frame. So it needs a weekly close below a 3.32 on a yield basis. If you're just trading the 10 year, which also we have the massive weekly double bottom because it's inverse, it needs a weekly close above 116.08 to trigger on just the 10 year note futures. So confirmed would be like summer changing to spring in Chicago. Trigger would be like they're actually being good weather in Chicago. So we, like we did you just make that up on the spot? You know, I'm very clever, Tim. I've heard. Clever. I've heard. But I think I've heard it from you, mostly. <laughs> All right, let's bring in uh, Mike Singleton. And uh, Mikey, stay with us. Mike Arnold, right? Let's go with Arnold and Singleton. How about that, Jimmy? Sounds good. I'm going to stop your screen share, Mikey, for now. Go ahead. Here I go. Actually, why don't you stop it? There you go. There we go. I got to unmute. I, I unmuted. Are you unmuted, Mike? Are you there? Singleton. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Mike, how are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Good. Um, 
Welcome to the Future's Edge podcast. Mike Singleton, the Chief Research Analyst for Invictus, correct? Did I get it all right? That's exactly right. By the way, I love I love the note I get. Bobby signed me up for it a couple months ago. And I the way you write is very concise. You break it up. It's one of the few notes I actually read that I get in my inbox. So how often do you put it out? I'm honored. The Daily Edge is every day. The weekly trade ideas is once a week. And the monthly market outlook is uh, comes out the first Monday of the month. So uh, the website is Invictus-research.com. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is at Invictus Macro. What are we trying to do at Invictus? We're trying to take hedge fund quality research and make it available to everyone. The flagship product is the Daily Edge. It's a call it five to 10 minute video every morning that covers the most important economic data releases from the day before, puts it in the context of the business cycle, uh, how are markets likely to react from here, uh, take something complex and make it as simple as possible. That's, that's kind of our goal and to do it in video format. So it's, you know, not just another PDF in your inbox. Yeah, no, I really enjoy it. Thank you very much for putting it out. Bobby, you got the questions first. Yeah, I do. So Singleton, and I'm going to call you that. I'll call you Mike when Mike's not here, but I'm going to call you Singleton for now. Um, I got So I love that one-click video that you do, again, at Invictus. So before we let you go, we definitely want to talk about where people can get a hold of you because they need to see this, if there's any sort of uh, way they can see this thing. Because the way you do this is just, it's just crystal clear. So to that point, you put out, maybe it was a week ago, you said that, so at the beginning of Mike's video, for those of you that haven't seen it, he does the three things that matter and the three things that don't matter. And I love it, man. I sit there and I'm watching it. And then I heard three things that don't matter. One of them, stagflation. And I whipped my water bottle against the screen. Like Singleton, <laughs> out of his mind, you have to worry about stagflation. Uh, tell me why I'm nuts. So I think, uh, first of all, we, we use certain words at Invictus and we have specific definitions for them. So when we say we're in a, a deflationary economic environment. What I mean is slower growth and slower inflation and rate of change terms. Mm-hmm. And when I use the word stagflation, what I mean is slower growth and faster inflation. So clearly since June of 2022, by that definition, we've been in a deflationary economic regime because inflation has been coming down. Uh, it doesn't mean that inflation is negative. It doesn't mean that inflation is low or pleasant. It's a, it's a simple economic framework for trying to figure out what matters uh, in the economy and explaining why it matters to markets because uh, the various liquid asset markets basically trade on just a handful of variables, growth and inflation being the biggest two. So uh, communication is really important and we try and distill it as simply as we can. And we think deflation is the the best word to describe what's going on right now. So So you're, I'm sorry, Jim, if you don't mind real quick, let me ask you a question and then let Jimmy go. So I understand disinflation to be what you're describing. So, I was gonna you, so what you're going to say, so have you decided that deflation was easier to understand for the purpose of your clients? Because right. I always learned disinflation meant a slower rate of change of inflation that still exists, where deflation right. is prices are actually negative from the last read. Is that right? Right. That's why I, I set up from, we have a slightly different definition. Our definition of deflation is disinflation plus slower real growth. Okay. But your, your, yours is the textbook definition for sure. Okay, so do you, you, like you should have couched that with if you dumbasses would just listen to what I said up front, then you wouldn't have asked me this dumb question. Is that what you meant? No, it's it's a very common, very common mix up. So I always like to preface whatever I say with that. Got it. You are you are pretty clear on these things. So the second thing I want to talk to you, you love looking at um, ISMs, right? Oh yeah. The ISM oh, yeah. PMI. So describe what the circumstance is now. Um, 
from your perspective for manufacturing ISM and, and how it affects the, the, the economic outlook? Sure. So, so I said earlier that uh, growth and inflation are two of the most important things that matter for markets, which I think maybe raises the question of which measure of growth is best. In our view at Invictus, the best measure of growth is the ISM manufacturing PMI. Why do I say that? There's a handful of reasons. It's high frequency relative to GDP, right? It comes out once a month rather than once a quarter. It's timely. It comes out within seven days of the end of the month, as opposed to a month after quarter end. And perhaps most importantly, uh, it has the highest correlation with stocks and with a bunch of other tradable exposures. So if you look at the ISM manufacturing PMI and compare it to the year-over-year -year change in the S&P 500, very, very close relationship. Um, and so obviously anything that trades with a very close relationship to say stocks is something that we're gonna spend a lot of time thinking about. So right now, and really since April of 2021, so it's been two years now, the ISM manufacturing PMI has been declining in rate of change terms. And uh, we could go into all the reasons why that's happening. A lot of it was people bought a ton of goods, manufactured products, goods, right? Uh, during COVID and then they stopped because um, by definition, people really don't need to buy goods with the same frequency as say services, particularly durable goods. Uh, by definition, durable goods last more than three years. So think cars, refrigerators, home appliances, dishwashers, uh, stuff like that. And on top of that, uh, the durable goods cycle tends to correspond to the housing cycle. And when the Fed raises you know, double or triples mortgage rates, that's going to reduce all spending on everything housing related. And that's exactly what we've seen. So uh, consumption tends to be the signal for manufacturers in terms of ramping up or ramping down production. Most manufacturers have seen consumption of durable goods decline pretty dramatically. And as a result, they've slowed production. And uh, you know, eventually what manufacturers will do, slowing production only works for so long before you, uh, you can't run a business, right? You have to produce things and you have to sell them and you have to sell them at a profit. And so the longer manufacturing is below 50, uh, the more pressure that'll put on manufacturing margins, and eventually it'll lead to layoffs. And generally, cyclical industries are the place where you see layoffs first and where you see them the most. Uh, through most recessions, manufacturing uh, is where you see the, the preponderance of layoffs. And so that's, we call that the canary in the coal mine of the labor market. That's one part of the labor market we're looking at very, very closely. And uh, also for, for what it's worth, we've seen marginal weakness in manufacturing uh, the overall, the labor market has remained very, very strong, like you were talking about earlier, more than enough to, to tighten the labor market and reduce the unemployment rate. But manufacturing has been a little bit softer, right? Which makes sense given that production growth has been so slow. So uh, maybe maybe I'll pause there before I <laughs> No, no, I, I just want to say, to me, it sounds like you are angling toward the recessionary camp. Is that accurate? Right, right. Well, and I think that's also aligned with the Fed's policy agenda right now. And so besides being consistent with our leading indicators and our forecasts, it's, it's also consistent with what policymakers want. And I think that one of the lessons over the last three years is uh, that should be a part of everyone's process, trying to determine what the incentives and the policy goals are of the Federal Reserve and the federal government. And uh, right now they want a recession, right? I mean, no need to mince words about it. That's, they want slack in the labor market and that's going to mean higher unemployment, which given everything else that's going on, will be the, the criteria that meets the NDR's recession for a formal definition so, for a formal recession. So the futures market and the interest rate curve is telling us that the recession is coming, but it's also saying that the Fed is going to flip on a dime, panic, and start lowering rates quickly. Can you weigh in on that? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's really, really interesting. I wish I had a 
So our formal view on, on interest rate policy right now is neutral, which is probably the most boring view in the world. Uh, but that's just to say, I don't think that there's an obviously good risk reward in rates right now. So when I look at economic, when anyone looks at economic conditions, clearly they suggest that the Fed should continue hiking, right? You've got unemployment at an extremely low level relative to history, right? 3.4% as of this morning. If you look at initial jobless claims as a percent of the labor force, secular lows going all the way back to the 60s. And at the same time, you have inflation running at multiples of target. And the chief problem driving inflation right now is services, which is driven by wage growth, growth, which is driven by super tight labor market, right? So you would think given that backdrop, the Fed should absolutely be hiking. That said, uh, short-term interest rates do have a very good uh, track record of forecasting Fed funds. So for example, if you took the two-year treasury yield and the Fed funds rate, the two-year tends to lead Fed funds by three months with a 98% correlation. And right now that spread is inverted by about 100 basis points the last time I checked. So what that would suggest is, the treasury market is forecasting cuts in the next three months or so. And you can look at your dollars, you can look at SOFR futures, you can look at Fed funds futures. They're all suggesting more or less the same thing. Short-term interest rates are suggesting that, that something dramatic is about to happen. And um, so the reason we say, our, that's the background. The reason we say we're neutral is we think that the Fed could end up hiking another 25 basis points, even another 50 basis points. That said, whenever there is a recession, the Fed will very, very likely cut 200 basis points, 300 basis points. That would be very in line with history. And so it's not really asymmetric. It is asymmetric to the downside, actually, uh, if you go long, higher interest rates right now. And so we don't think that, we think that the futures market is getting a little ahead of itself in terms of when the cuts will happen, but we do think that eventually they will be right. Our expectation is probably more toward the back half of this year, uh, probably toward November or December, given what we know right now. Uh, but we don't, we don't, I'm not super interested in going long higher rates as, as a thesis, uh, given, you know, given that view. So is, is the bank crisis real? Is this, we've seen four cockroaches. Is there more cockroaches? <laughs> it's, you know, that, that, that's a hard question. And I'm, I'm not a bank analyst. You I'll say from what, I, what I do now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a particularly hard question uh, because the banking system is, 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 you know, very complicated and, and the, the risks of the banking system are hard to sometimes deduce from the outside. I would say when I look at the banking system, it looks okay. Uh, but uh, there's obviously variables that I don't fully understand. Clearly, short-term interest rates are sniffing out something that is way out of consensus for the equity markets and for every other market that, that's not short-term interest rates. Could that be banking-related? Sure. Also, I will say that bank lending or bank lending standards have been tightening uh, significantly prior to what happened in March. And uh, bank lending standards tend to lead a lot of other important variables like the unemployment rate. And so um, if you were to run a regression of bank lending standards on the unemployment rate and, and push it forward by five quarters, uh, there's a pretty close correlation. And what it suggests is that we're going to see an unemployment rate of 7% by Q2 of uh, 2024. And, and this is based on senior loan officer survey prior to the debacle of Silicon Valley Bank in mid-March. So even if there's no additional credit contraction from, from this whole crisis, right, that should be enough to get the unemployment rate. 7% seven, is a, it's a one-factor, one simple linear regression, uh, but it's clearly pointing to something bad happening, uh, right? This is just to say, even if nothing further happens with the banking system, we've probably <coughs> seen enough tightening that it, it's going to cause 
uh, rather significant economic damage. So Mike, you had a question, Mike Arnold. Yeah, I was wondering before when you were talking about your ISM numbers, which I really like your analysis on that and how if they stay contracting for an extended period of time, you know, it will eventually lead to more manufacturing layoffs. Do you have a, a time frame because we've been contracted for for a while now when you expect a ramp up in uh, manufacturing layoffs to start occurring? Sure. So we have a, a number of leading indicators for this. I just talked about one, which is the, the senior loan officer survey. Based on our, our suite of leading indicators, it suggests that we actually don't see an unemployment rate above 4% until December of this year, right? Which means that the labor market could show only marginal signs of weakness until the end of this year. That's another seven months, right? It's a long time. Um, and where the layoffs will really start in force, where you really start to see it flowing through to the unemployment rate, will be in between January and June of 2024. So that's our base case in terms of the time frame. So let me ask you something, Mike Singleton. If Where you come in, let, let's do a thought exercise here. The Chicago Fed said that full employment is 4.1%. Now, they all talk about a 2% inflation target. We know that already. Powell argued with whatever reporter that was, it's 2%. So let's say that December of this year, we get a 4% unemployment rate. And we don't have what people would agree the NBER would call a recession. I still hate that they do that, by the way. They've never announced one during. They always announce it after it's over. But let's say that we're there. Let's say the GDP is 0.9%. I, I don't know. You don't like GDP that much. I know from watching your stuff. But what do you think the Fed does in that case if the banking system is still kind of, I hate to call it sound, uh, not critical? Do you have any opinion of what the Fed might do there? Or is that just not something you do? Or is that continued pause? What do you think on that? So I think if the unemployment rate is between three and a half and 4%, and we're in a zero productivity growth environment, which we are, and I think will continue to be the case for several years to come, then we should expect between four and a half and 5% headline inflation. I don't think that the Fed can do anything but continue to tighten in that scenario. So in a sense, it's a little bit of a no-win situation for the economy, right? As long as unemployment, excuse me, as long as inflation is above target, and certainly as long as it's multiples of target, um, the Fed will continue to tighten essentially until we see a recession. They've said that that's the outcome that they prefer. I think we should believe them. They've just like 500, 525 basis points over the course of like, you know, 15 months or something. A lot of people uh, didn't believe they'd do that. Right. It's, it's at the, you know, if you would have said that 18 months ago, I think everyone would have said that's crazy. <laughs> the neutral rate's only, you know, a percent or something, but they did. So I think that we should believe them. I, I think that this is their foremost policy priority. And I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt it right now. You're muted. Jimmy, you're muted. You're muted. You can just assume when I'm muted that I was saying something brilliant. Okay. <laughs> I think no, I've heard that um, before from you. Right, exactly. Yeah. I'm the guy who said it. Okay. So we talked about the Fed, and we all agree mm -hmm. that there's a significant lag time before we feel the efficacy of Fed rate hikes. So we're, we've said they should keep hiking, they should whatever. If we'd all agree that if, if rate hikes were immediate and immediately felt, they probably would keep hiking. What they've done right now is they've said, okay, we've hiked you know, 5%. Um, 
we have to see how this plays out over the next three months, six months. I guess the long way of what I'm asking you, Mike, is that do you think that once these we start to feel the punch of these rate hikes, that things are going to start to deteriorate, accelerate to the downside? Yeah, absolutely. So clearly the story of 2022 was interest rate shock, right? It was the Fed hiking rates as fast as they have since Volcker. And the big question after 20, post-2022, we're probably toward the end of the hiking cycle, whether they get another 25, 50 basis points, whatever. We're closer to the end than to the beginning. So the big question is, uh, how does that interest rate shock flow through the economy? And history tells us that it takes about 18 months, right? So, and, and generally speaking, the, the severity of a growth contraction corresponds to the severity, to, to the, uh, the amount and the speed of the hiking cycle that precedes it. And so what that suggests is we're going to see a nonlinear contraction in growth, which we define as the PMI, right, usually, uh, in the back half of this year, right? So when will that flow through the economy? When will that really start to hit the stock market? Second half of 2023. So here, I wrote a thing in my Substack on, on Sunday, which I'm sure you read, I'm sure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> About M2 money supply. Okay. So there's been five times, including this time, that M2 money supplies contracted more than 2%. Four, uh, three of those times were associated with depressions, one with an um, absolute panic in 1873. This time we've contracted M2 money supply 4% counting. I know that it's a little bit different because we threw $7 trillion into the system at once, but also the inflation reflected that. Does a 4% contraction in M2 money supply that doesn't alarm you about the, the a potential for a huge deceleration in inflation? No, I think, I think it is alarming. Um, M2 tends to lead inflation with incredibly long, an incredibly long lead. You know, One in the to realm two years, of, right? In the realm of two years, that's exactly right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that inflation probably is going to come down fast, just like it does through, through every recession. And I think that M2... What we're seeing in M2 right now is consistent with that. So when, I'm, when I'm, we point, I'm just talking to Bobby and stuff too. You keep talking. We're, we're, they're here to pay you. Don't let my hand motion stop you at all. So here, Bobby, you got something? I do. Michael? So here's a question. And I got yelled at for saying this on Yahoo, actually. No, it wasn't on Yahoo. Yeah, it was on Yahoo. It doesn't matter. I'm just kind of name dropping TV stations that I'm on. So I said that this rate regime is going to be very difficult for companies to sustain through. Part of the reason I say that is because if you look at the S&P 500, a full 60 some odd percent of the C-suite has never seen money cost anything because they're in their 40s or their 30s, right? Especially in tech. No mm -hmm. offense, I think you're about 22. So if you go back like even if we get all these rate hikes that they're pricing in right now, I was just talking to, to Mike about this earlier, you would be getting rates that would be the highest if you take the rate hike cycle out. If you took all the rate cuts, they drop it down to 275 to 300 basis points. So 2.75 to 3%. That would be the highest level of rates since July of 2008, except for the rate hike cycle we just went through in terms of the short end. Do you think that's going to cause some companies to not really understand how to run their companies now that money costs something? It, it could cost something that they had never seen before, even for the next two years, I think in the most aggressive rate cut uh, regimes. I think so. I, 
personally, I don't understand how we could not see a wave of bankruptcies over the next, call it two years. I'm so for you could, for example, look at the triple C effective yield. So not the credit spread, the, the effective yield. And that's a proxy for really junky public issuers, but also probably a lot of non-public issuers as well. And rates have obviously gone up, benchmark rates have gone up 5% or so. And then credit spreads have widened considerably more for these triple C borrowers than for the average high yield borrower. So let's say that uh, the borrow, the average borrow rate for these junky borrowers and for non-public, for many non-public issuers is tripled. I think that there's gonna be a ton of businesses that try and roll their debt in the next year, two years or so, and they cannot pay for anything and they just have to fold. And that obviously has knock-on effects because these companies had customers and vendors and ecosystems that they were a part of. And that's going to hit all of those companies as well. And uh, we haven't seen anything like that basically since the great financial crisis. And uh, you know, I, I don't know how that doesn't create a, a, reflect, a reflexive problem in the employment data and the growth data. And it could be a very prolonged, uh, it could be a very prolonged recession that we're talking about especially if the Fed's reaction function is really slow, which Chair Powell has said it's going to be really slow. Uh, it's, it's definitely a negative combination for, for business assets and obviously stocks. Well, that, that's the point of the exercise though, right? That's what we're, like there, there's a shit ton of zombie companies, companies that probably should have gone bankrupt. And I'm, I'm fine with the natural market um, clearing the hedges, so to speak. I, I do, it bums me out when the Fed goes back and forth and pushes it too low for too long, too high, and then knocks out some companies in the wake of the companies that should have been knocked up. But I guess my question is that that's what they're they're gearing toward. That's the whole point of the exercise, correct? Right, right. I don't think they would ever say that explicitly, but but I we think all so. know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would you agree with us that for the most part they're a bunch of dumbasses at the Fed? Would you say that on record or no? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if they're if they're dumb. It's easy to point out policy mistakes, and they can't exercise risk management the same way that an investor does, particularly like technicians, right? If they make a mistake, there's no stop loss. Well, I mean, we uh, judge so, from the sidelines here. We're going to be doing this for years and years and years. Somebody <laughs> tried to put me on the Fed, I'd say no, because then I can't judge them from where we sit. I'd say, what does the job pay? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, not that you have to have a hundred million dollar net worth before you uh, start working there. Exactly. You, uh, so we got you to throw a punch. Good night. Nice go. okay, <laughs> He's too nice a guy. I haven't heard a shit or a fuck or anything. There's so, no doubt about it. And he actually even tried to say dumbasses and he swallowed the second part because he didn't want to cuss on air. That's very impressive, Mike. Very impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> I'm so, <media> training. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for. <laughs> so let me ask you where you fall in on the regional bank thing. So I wrote in, in the Substack recently as well that uh, it's sort of a mea culpa. I mean, when they first rescued uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature, well, they didn't rescue Signature, but when they first rescued Silicon Valley Bank, um, I wrote a note that basically said, I don't understand why uh, my father-in-law and Jim's uncle and Mike's aunt should have to worry about whether their bank is safe when they put their deposits in. And actually, Mike Arnold argued with me. He's like, no, you're wrong on that. They should lose all their money. And I'm like, my father-in-law doesn't know if a bank is, has too many hold to maturity securities that are underwater because of the Fed. You know, I, I, they should be bailed out. And then three, four weeks later, I wrote a mea culpa saying, I'm, I'm completely wrong on that. Um, and the reason, my, my reasoning was, we essentially have a system right now admitted by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen 
where they pick the winners and losers. She said a supermajority of FDIC, a supermajority of the Federal Reserve Board, and I in consultation with the president decide who is systematically important. And again, throw the water bottle at the TV moment. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So these unelected officials just, again, I don't mean to get into politics, but I just went to a political luncheon. They, they're like, they get to pick. So where do you fall in where Jerome Powell said in this last press conference, he thinks regional banks perform a, a very important function, even though we've gone from 14,000 to under 5,000 of them, they perform a very important function, but not a systematically important function. Where do you fall on these bailouts and, and what could happen going forward with the banks that may fail and not get rescued? That was a long well, question. I, th I, think he's, I think he's right that regional banks are really important and in aggregate, they are systemically important. And uh, you know whether his actions are consistent with what he said at the press conference, I don't know. A lot of these regulatory decisions are still TBD, right? And I'm, I'm ho really hoping that whatever he does enables a robust regional banking system. And the reason that I say that is because for most small businesses, when they need capital, they go to a regional bank. They don't go to a venture capital firm. And um, part of the reason that we've had weak growth post the great financial crisis is because banks weren't providing capital the way that they used to. And so good ideas weren't being funded and it was reflected in a weak labor market that took a long time to recover and below trend GDP growth and everything else that I think everyone probably already knows about. So eventually though, you get to a point where if regional banks aren't providing capital, someone else will, and that someone is probably going to be the government. So what do we know about how the government provides capital? Well, it's not very efficient. <laughs> uh, they're not good, right? Expansion of credit is a good thing if it's used to fund productive endeavors. And generally banks are pretty good at that, right? Banks are a, a, a transmission mechanism of capitalism. Uh, and governments are really bad at it. And that's not just theory from uh, the wealth of nations. You can also track that with some numbers. And one that we like to use and Victus is if you look at the ratio of federal government debt to GDP and you invert it, it looks a lot like the 30-year treasury yield. Why is that? What does that mean? Who cares? Well, generally, the 30-year treasury yield trades atop nominal long-term growth expectations. That's a simple mental model for understanding it. And so the bigger the government gets, the more national debt, the more resources it's in charge of allocating, uh, financial and otherwise, because they also manage a lot of human capital. The government employs a lot of people. They also regulate how capital is used, how, how many mines can be opened, how many new wells can be drilled, uh, the lower long-term growth expectations for the U.S. go. So the bigger the government, the lower long-term growth expectations, the bigger the private sector relative to the government, generally speaking, the better. So you know, the, the, more, the more government is involved in allocating capital, generally speaking, the worse it is for growth. And over the long term, the worse it is for business assets, including stocks. Okay, rant time. The biggest four banks right now have $10 trillion of assets. The entire 4,500 banking system in America has $22 trillion. So almost half the assets are in the biggest four banks. I think this was done intentionally. I think the government has helped walk us toward that because when, it, when a bank has $2 trillion in assets, it becomes a public-private enterprise because it all of a sudden is too big to fail. So all of a sudden, they are in coots and in business with the federal government. Even little things like you know, taking over student loan debt, um, talking about um, you know, these mortgage fees that were introduced last week, negotiating the deal with J.P. Morgan. The federal government keeps inserting themselves into banking. They, are, they want the whole world to just believe 
that that this is their purview. This is their thing. They've already nationalized the banking system. Is there any way to ever reverse that? You said a robust uh, regional banking system. How is that ever going to happen? I mean, I think the Justice Department has to have some teeth. And I think that there's going to have to be sort of a wholesale change in the way the administrative state governs. Sadly, I don't see any counter evidence to what you said. So I'll just leave it there. I, I almost want to speak for you and say you completely agree, but it doesn't seem like you uh, want to say that. So that's fine. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I think Janet, Janet Yellen had a testimony to this effect before Congress where they asked the question that, that Jim is talking about, and she just sort of danced around it. And I thought that that was pretty embarrassing. No doubt. Yes. Yeah, she, when they asked her about the thing, um, uh, about who decides, I don't even remember who it was, Senator from Oklahoma, I think, I forgot his name. And he's basically saying all that stuff. And, and he basically said, so the banks from Oklahoma, the money's not safe there. And she's like, no, sir, it's not. And just sit back. And I was like, okay, she's chilling. done. She's, she's tired. She's over. <laughs> she basically said, no, what are you going to do about it? Go ahead, Mike Garland. I, I want to bring this back around to something else. I finally found it. I was scrolling through something because uh, John Huston tweeted earlier today and I follow him, but uh, something that jumped out to me because I hadn't seen this before. And I just wanted to know if Mike, you have any, uh, if you have any research along this lines, he said, does it bother anyone that the only recessions that brought core PC inflation below 3% within 24 months were also recessions that started with core PCE inflation below 3%. So hmm. really the thing that brought, if it didn't start below 3%, you know, it, it, could remain elevated, which would somewhat be that stagflation by the traditional sense of the word. Do you have any information, all right, with the rate of drop on the core PCE, which is one of the Fed's favorite two things they look at and uh, how that could come down in a rece recessionary environment? Otherwise, if it's going to hold up and yeah, we get a recession and core PCE does hold up above 3%, that's not going to be good. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it will. And the reason I say that is, I'll reference something that I said earlier. Uh, the depth of a growth contraction generally corresponds to the speed and severity of the interest rate hikes that precede it. Well, what drives the speed and severity of interest rate hikes? Inflation, right? And the reason the Fed has hiked so aggressively and so quickly is because inflation was hot. The, the Fed is probably, if you just look at inflation and interest rates and how they interact. The Fed has probably hiked enough at, at this point to kill inflation through a recession, but it's just it's going to take time for that to, to flow through the full economy and through the labor market. So, so we're above the neutral rate, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean, right? I think, in my opinion, I think it's, it's safe to say that, yeah. Well, in the, in the futures market's opinion, too, obviously, since the yield curve has been deeply inverted for since you know, a year. So I think that they agree with that as well. Bobby, you got anything? Yeah, Mike, do you look at the yield curve at all? And if so, what's your opinion on what's going on with it? So I think it's it's consonant with what we're seeing in short-term interest rates. So I think the yield curve is a good leading indicator. I don't think it's the best leading indicator, but it, it's good enough that I certainly pay attention to it. Generally, the yield curve leads the ISM manufacturing PMI by about 12 months, right? And uh, not a perfect correlation, but it's, again, good enough. And... Uh, just as importantly that as that, though, is the economic logic driving the yield curve. And so the, the short rate, I'm not going to say anything that's surprising you guys, but maybe for the benefit of your viewers, short rates tend to be driven by policy. 
and long rates tend to be driven by policy and expectations about economic growth. So when you see the yield curve flattening or eventually turning negative, what that that's the bond market effectively saying, hey, you've uh, you've tightened economic conditions to the extent that you're going to uh, influence future growth down. And generally, a, an inversion corresponds to negative growth, growth below zero in the out months, as it happens about 12 months out. And so we've seen a very deeply inverted yield curve. That's as a result of an aggressive hiking cycle by the Fed. And now, post Silicon Valley Bank, uh, it started to steepen up just a little bit again. And so when does the yield curve tend to start steepening? It, it tends to start steepening in anticipation of a cutting cycle, right? And uh, again, that's very consistent with what short-term interest rates are saying. Uh, I'd also say that the Fed tends to stop hiking before recessions, and then they start cutting about six months after that. And so <laughs> the, yield, the yield curve is saying that uh, the next step of the business cycle is ready to progress, right? Uh, again, I think it's probably getting a little bit ahead of the data, which markets are, are prone to do. Um, but I think that's what's going on, right? Is that the yield curve is saying that there's a recession around the corner. Can we start something right here? Because this is we, we the five guys who are my partners. We argue about this all the time. The yield curve has been inverted. So as the yield curve moves back to zero, we call that steepening. But it's not really steepening. It's actually re-flattening, and it confuses the shit out of me all the time. Does it confuse you guys as well, or am I just an idiot? There should be a phase of re-flattening. I agree. It's, yes, I it's agree. not steepening. It's it's flattening again. Yeah. And Mike's, you guys will like it. Jim and I have constant arguments about language, like about what the language is. We had the pivot pause argument for probably 10 shows before we finally agreed that a pause has to come. It's called forward. stubbornness. It is called stubbornness. So yeah. Mike's think there's any market, market more, more confusing to the layperson than the bond market. Oh yeah, right. No, if you buy it, that's where you think yields are going down. Try and explain to people I just forget it and have a drink instead. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else have any important questions except what Jimmy's about to ask? Go ahead, Jimmy. Oh, I just was going to ask, what's your what? How long have you been in the business? Where'd you go to school? Things like that. So I went to Notre Dame. I studied finance there. Wait a second. We had a whole show, and you didn't tell us you went to Notre Dame. You're the one guy who doesn't scream it to everybody. That would have stopped the show. Do you guys <laughs> like Notre Dame? No, I love Notre Dame. I grew up hating Notre Dame until my younger daughter almost went there. So we went to some, uh, we went to some recruiting events, and I was, I drank the Kool Aid and was ready to, ready to go. But she did not end up going to Notre Dame. But you know, our buddy Jeff Kilberg, who, goddamn, but he can't go five minutes without talking about Notre Dame. And in the Midwest, you know, you know the joke, right? How do you know when someone went to Notre Dame? <laughs> right? Okay, they tell yeah. you in the first five minutes. Can I tell Where, a quick Jeff Kilberg story, Jimmy? Sure. One of the first times I ever met him, where we're sitting, we're going to do a video for the CME group together. We're going to do kind of a back and forth market chat. And Jeff Kilbert says to me, Jeff Kilbert says, you ready? Are these questions okay with you? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. I mean, I didn't really look at him, but it's fine. Go, well, you know, as Coach, uh, Coach Holtz always said, and I'm like, who? And he got, I obviously knew who Coach Holtz was. <laughs> I, said, I said, who? And he's like, you're joking, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm joking. I just don't like you Notre Dame guys. Just as a rule, they can be they can be overbearing for sure. <laughs> That's a good word for it. Yeah. Cool. And did you go work, go to work right at Evictus right after Notre Dame? No. So I worked at a hedge fund for a few years after that. And interestingly enough, it was more of a bottom up shop, more of a it was technically Garpy, but very influenced by Ben Ben Graham and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. 
And it was a great experience. I really don't have anything negative at all to say about it. Um, I got a lot of independence. I spent most of my time analyzing businesses. So it was very bottom up. It wasn't top down. But uh, overall, it was great. Uh, I got the chance to travel to conferences and you know, leave my own stuff and uh, go to idea dinners and pitch and all of that. And over the course of my time there, funny enough, um, I actually met a, sort of a mentor from another firm who was more top down. And you know, th this dude was just crushing it. And we, you know, we would talk and keep in touch and he'd, he'd be getting stuff right that I'd be getting wrong. And he'd be making calls and stuff that I didn't have the first idea of how to forecast you know, sector calls or gold or rates or whatever. And I'd be like, how, on, <laughs> how is he figuring all this stuff out? I don't know what's going on. And so eventually I sort of swallowed my pride and figured I, be I better figure out what, what tea leaves this guy's reading. Uh, and so I started to integrate, you know, I, I worked with him a little bit more closely. I started buying more macro research, doing more top-down work myself, sort of integrating it into my own process at the, at the firm. And uh, it, you know, it enhanced my stock picking skills and made me a better analyst. It was fantastic. And then uh, I did it for long enough. I, I, you know, had a few good years. I got married. Uh, I kind of figured it was, uh, I had good savings relative to the fixed cost in my life. And I, I figured it was time to, if I'm going to start a business, this is the time to do it, take a little risk. And uh, so I, I left to start Invictus in. Oh, in I'm sorry. I didn't know you started Invictus. That's really cool. I didn't know that part. Yeah, I did. Yeah, That's I awesome. did. I, I started it in the early fall of 2021. So it's been about 18 months now. And uh, so far, so good. Invictus has been tons of fun. It ends up being a lot more top down work than bottom up work. But a lot of my clients are more bottom up. And so it helps to be able to communicate why the top down work matters to a to a to a stock picker as a client. I love that. And are you from the Midwest? Is that how you ended up in Notre Dame? <laughs> no, I think I went to Notre Dame because I was Catholic. I went to uh, <laughs> I went to an all boys Catholic high school, and uh, in the in the Baltimore area. So there are a lot of all boys Catholic high schools in the Baltimore area, um, because it was a, it was sort of like the Catholic sanctuary state back in the day. And so <laughs> Notre Dame is is sort of an aspirational school over there, and. Uh, I got in and a few of my friends got in and I visited and I was like, oh my God, probably, probably similar to what happened to you. I drank the Kool-Aid. Oh, and, uh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah I, I was, was like, almost I was in like, tears when this one kid gave a speech about Notre Dame and loyalty. I was jumping up and wanted to slap the, what do they, <laughs> what's the sign that they slap when they come out of the tunnel? Play like a yeah, champion. Yeah, play like a champion. Play like a champion today, right? Yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> I was, yeah, I was brainwashed. I was brainwashed, you know. I love it. That's a good brainwashing, by the way. I think that that's well, I just like for Notre Dame. Game. Go ahead, Jim, Mike. I got the most important question, though. So now I know you're from Mar you grew up in Maryland. What's what's the best crab cake? Wow. Um, in Baltimore, in Maryland, total. In I I used to live in the Baltimore area. I used to go to G and M all the time. Uh, hmm. But I want to know. I've asked this to a number of people because I'm a crab cake, a jumbo lump crab cake fanatic. So I need to hear your take on it. So Edgewater Restaurant is really good. Uh, it's just outside of Annapolis. Okay. Uh, I I like Boatyard Grill in Annapolis. Um, let's see. I like Severn Inn also in Annapolis. Uh, I like Cantler's, which is not in Annapolis, but it's within 15 minutes of it. There's probably a bunch of great places in Baltimore too, but I don't spend as much time there, at least not as much as I used to. Um, so those are probably either you two. Have either of you two been to Annapolis, Bobby or Mike? Annapolis is one of my favorite towns. Yeah, I used to. Best I time. was used to be there. I used to take weekend trips there all the time when I was. In I think the, it's fabulous. I was at a Marine wedding and I was drinking with these Marine 
pilots. I felt like I was in the great Santini. And the next day I must've thrown up 70 times. The wedding was at noon and I was supposed to be in the wedding. I made it to the wedding, by the way, but I got out of bed at about 11. And I almost was looking for someone to fit the suit because we were drinking all night with Marine pilots in Annapolis. It was fabulous. Yeah, you got to have crab cakes the next morning to help with the hangover. <laughs> that would have helped. If I would have done that, I would have been fine. So right, maybe that's what I was asking. What the crab, yeah. where you go for the crab cakes? So guy, maybe there was a tie in there. <laughs> I got to go. I got to do the Cudlow show. Mike, it was so nice to meet you. I'll see you soon. Yeah, likewise. Nice to meet you.